0: How amazing that I can actually get rid of this in my family because so many people get cancer or other illnesses that they have zero control. My aunt didn't die for nothing. She gave us a gift and we're going to do something
1: with it. Genetics isn't always black and white, and the emotions and decisions surrounding genetic testing can be even more complex. Welcome to Patient Stories with Gray Genetics. I'm Eleanor Griffith, a certified genetic counselor and the founder of Grey Genetics, a telehealth genetic counseling and consulting service. It seems like there are constantly headlines in the news about genetics, but few news stories focus on the patient experience. At Grey Genetics, we are collecting patient stories, your stories. Every other Tuesday,
0: we share an interview with a patient or a genetic counselor. I think that physicians who don't test their patients for hereditary cancer are really doing a disservice. Life without a stomach is in a way the same that it was before. It's amazing that your, what your body can go through and what you can fight through. Because I have to think about these small things, That makes me really thankful for small things. Sherry Lee
1: Pasolacqua is 31 years old. When she was 26 years old, after losing her maternal aunt to stomach cancer, Sherry was found to carry a mutation in the CDH1 gene, inherited from her mother's side. Her genetic diagnosis led her down a path that included a prophylactic gastrectomy at the age of 30. She is passionate about raising awareness for hereditary cancer risk and how testing can be life-saving. She has also recently started an Instagram account focused on stomach cancer awareness. Hi Sherry, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing your story with me. No problem. So you have a mutation in a gene called CDH1. What does that mean, and how did you learn that you carried a mutation in the CDH1 gene?
0: The CDH1 gene is associated with hereditary diffuse gastric cancer. It's primarily known as HDGC. And the way that I found out that I had this was about six years ago, my aunt, which is my mother's sister, got very sick. She got sick in November and uh, they didn't know what was wrong with her. She kept going to the doctor. They said that she had a blockage. She drank and they assumed that it was due to that. And Then six months later in May, she passed away. And before she passed away, someone said, I want to test you to see if this is hereditary. And it was, um, they thought it was at first colon cancer and it wasn't, it was actually stomach cancer that came from CDH1 that spread down to her colon. And that physician that tested her, that's how we found out that the mutation was in our family.
1: Okay. And was it was it a case where the cancer was advanced enough that it wasn't obvious where the cancer had originated?
0: Yes. So with CDH1 it grows in the lining of your stomach, so it's very difficult to find. And based off of statistics, it's actually usually usually found in stage four or stage five. So by that time, there's, I believe, only a 4% survival rate. So what happens is, is that it grows in the lining, you don't know it's there, you don't have symptoms, and then a lot of times it spreads to other places in your body. So in my aunt's case, it turned into colon cancer, And that's what's uncovered, and then they don't know that it came from the stomach or what went where. It's extremely aggressive.
1: Okay. And was that the first person on your mother's side of the family who you knew of who'd had cancer or cancer at such a young age? Do you know? Do you know how old your aunt was when she was diagnosed?
0: Yeah. So my aunt was 49, I believe. So she was either 49 or 50. And as I said, within from November to that first week in May is when she passed away.
1: Yeah. Uh, were you were you very close to your aunt?
0: When I was younger, I was closer with her. She lived in Virginia, so I had, a, of course, a relationship with her. We saw them on holidays. My aunt has four children, so I have four cousins. So it was more of a Thanksgiving and Christmas, and then... In those final six months, I did see her and it was absolutely horrendous. Um, The state that she was in, I want to say it quickly progresses and slowly kills you, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense, because she was hallucinating. She was so thin and she was in a tremendous amount of pain and it was a horrible thing to watch and not something that i would ever want my loved ones to watch me go through
1: yeah how how did she share with you the information about the cdh1 gene and that genetic testing do you know if it's something that her doctor urged her to share did she bring it up or did you or your mom ask her about um that kind of information so
0: um, so actually to answer your question before, because I think this will help is, so my aunt was not mm-hmm. the first person that had cancer in my family. My mom's father um, passed away from cancer as well. And they also thought that it was colon cancer when really now that we have more information, we realize that the CDH1 comes from that line of our family and he was most likely likely positive too. Um, we had no idea what CDH1 was. I work in healthcare and uh, all you ever hear about is BRCA because right. <laughs> right? Cause that's all the media talks about. And so it was a physician that before my aunt passed away said, hey, I just want to test you for this. And of course, um, my grandmother was like, yes, no no problem, like test her. And then that's how we found out the information.
1: Okay. Um, so it sounds like your mom was close enough to, to her to kind of hear about those conversations she was having with her doctors. Because I know sometimes like that's an issue is family members don't necessarily share all of that information. Yeah. <laughs> Either they don't want to, or it just like kind of gets gets lost in the shuffle of everything that's going on.
0: Yes. So it was, uh, the communication was between them. My mom was there. So my mom heard a lot of the information herself.
1: Okay, so she was like going to appointments with, with your aunt too? Yeah. Okay. Um. So what what was the next step once uh, you all knew that your aunt carried this mutation? Did other family members immediately have testing done or have genetic counseling done? Or was that, um, I mean, you working in healthcare might have had more of a background with familiarity with BRCA, but I imagine for a lot of your family members, it was like very new information completely.
0: Uh, yeah. So at first we didn't really do anything. My aunt's passing was very difficult on my family, especially my grandmother and my mother. And then. I ended up finding out, and this was after the fact, that my mom just started doing tons of research. Um, I'm one of five, and my mom saw that my aunt left her four children here, and she didn't want that to happen to her or to us, and she didn't want her mom to watch her pass away. Um, So my mom went online, did research. She connected with No Stomach for Cancer, the organization online. She befriended individuals through it and she went for testing and she was positive. And once she was positive and did her research and had a better understanding of it then that's when she shared it with myself and my siblings so that we really understood what it was and what it meant and what it could mean for us yeah
1: how did your mom go about actually having that testing done do you know if she had like a physician order it or if she saw a genetic counselor
0: yeah so my mom went to a genetic counselor at mount sinai and she sat with a genetic counselor at Mount Sinai in New York City, and then the testing was done through Ambry Genetics mm-hmm. at the time. So she wasn't tested for a panel. She was just tested for, for specifically for CDH1. And as she was doing this, she was also spreading awareness to other individuals in my family on her father's side, so his siblings, cousins, and sharing it with them that this could be a possibility
1: yeah um do you know what your mother's experience was like with genetic counseling i was i hear lots of different (laughs) feedback where some people you know you go in and it seems like a hassle to have this appointment because you already know you want the test and other patients you say like no it was really invaluable to be able to like have it explained by someone do you know what your mom's take on it was
0: I think that she felt that it was positive because a lot of the information that she was getting was of course, from reading online or was from connecting with other individuals who had the mutation. But when she was able to sit in front of a genetic counselor, it was okay. This is what it could be. This is what it would mean. And this is what it would mean for your children if you were positive. And then if you are positive, this is who you'll then be connected with. Mm-hmm. So th- those would be the following steps.
1: Right. And so what medical management is recommended for someone who's found to have a mutation in the CDH1 gene?
0: So the gold standard essentially for the CDH1 gene is to have a total gastrectomy. So what you do at first from a medical management standpoint is, is that you get endoscopies every six months. The endoscopies need to be with someone who understands what they're looking for. And the reason that I say that is because they need to be targeted biopsies. An example is that prior to myself getting my total gastrectomy, I was getting anywhere between 40 to 45 biopsies because they could miss it. And since it's such a fast growing cancer, like you can go for your endoscopy and then go back six months later and have cancer. So so that is that piece of it. It's also to get colonoscopies every three to five years because there's about a 6% chance of getting colorectal cancer. There's really not tons of information about that specifically. So I think it depends on what type of physician you go to and really how proactive they wanna be. And there's Uh also a chance of breast cancer so it's a lobular breast cancer. So the way that I always explain it is is that it's almost the same as the stomach cancer. It grows in the lining, so it's essentially flat. So you're not going to get lumps and bumps. Um uh-huh. so you have to get MRIs and mammograms alternating every 6 months.
1: Which that that is the kind of management that's similar to someone with a BRCA mutation, right? Even though the where it would grow is different.
0: Yes, it is. And I know that when I started talking about CDH1, no one, of course, knew what it was. But then when I bring up the breast cancer piece of it, they're almost in a sense floored because they think that the only way they can get breast cancer is if they are positive for the BRCA gene, which is false. Um, My mother had a total gastrectomy and she also had a double mastectomy with reconstruction because there is... Uh, I wanna say it's about a 53% chance of getting breast cancer.
1: Yeah, really high. Yeah. Um, Do you have a sense of how common it is to have a CDH1 mutation? It is much less common than having a BRCA mutation, right?
0: Yes, it is. So CDH1, I don't know the statistics for it specifically. There's not tons of information. Um, I know that for stomach cancer, it's about 1 million people annually get diagnosed, and that mm-hmm. it is the third leading cause of death, um, which is very high. Um, but for CDH1 specifically, because when you have that type of stomach cancer and it's not found until stage four or five, the survival rate is extremely low.
1: And so your mom, when she met with the genetic counselor, and heard that part of the medical management would be a total gastrectomy prophylactic was that was that a surprise to her or was that something she'd already read online, I feel like that, at least among genetic counselors that's, that's something that always seems. Uh, it, I guess extreme to us because um you know, there's a clear medical indication, but it's just like such a hard surgery to tell someone like you have to have this done yeah. <laughs> um, when it when it's, you know, like breasts are important, but they don't they're not part of your digestive system, for instance.
0: Right. Um, so she was not surprised because she already knew. So before my aunt passed away um, and actually let me back up. So my grandmother was telling me the story that when at first, I think someone mentioned that my aunt had to get her stomach removed. And my aunt was like, you're not taking my stomach, like you're crazy. And then Mm -hmm. in such a short time period, she became so ill, that she was begging them like, please just take my stomach. I just want to live. And when you watch someone or hear someone that you love say that, and I don't want to speak for my mother, but I think that it was a no-brainer for her because my aunt died, left her family here. It was a horrible, sad, painful death. And she had the opportunity to save her life. And if that meant not having an organ, then that's what she was going to do.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, And once your mother had her test results so she then knew that you and you said you have four siblings right so that each of you had a 50 percent chance of also having the same mutation did you and did all of your siblings also want to have testing done or did you have any siblings who just did not want that testing
0: yeah so i right away wanted to get the testing done Um, I think, again, because I saw my aunt right before she passed away in hospice, and then I knew the decision that my mom was making, that Mm -hmm. it was a no-brainer for me. And I knew if I was positive, I was going to get a total gastrectomy. I didn't care. That's just what I was going to do. Um, So going into it, that was my decision. My sister is five years younger than me. So I'm 31. She's 26. At the time, she was still in college. So it really wasn't necessary for her to do it right then and there. Um, My brother is 11 months younger than me. And he at first made the decision to not get the testing done. And his reasoning at first was, well, I'm not going to get my stomach removed. So he didn't feel a need for it. And then through conversations, it was you don't have to take that approach, but at least if you have the information, you can then get endoscopies and Mm -hmm. you can increase surveillance. And then my brother wanted to have a baby, and because he wanted to have a baby, he made the decision to get tested, and he was negative, which I'm of course very happy about. And he has a beautiful six-month baby girl, and um. She's of course negative because he was.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, And if, and like, so it sounds like he got testing done also knowing that if he were positive, it would have been possible to think about doing genetic testing, like with IVF, right? To avoid passing it on. Yes,
0: exactly. So that was why he did it. He did it so that if he was positive, he could then have a child that would not be.
1: Yeah. Um, and your sister, has she, has she had testing done yet at this point or not yet?
0: Yes, she has. And she is positive as well.
1: Did she, um, well, tell me, I guess, tell me first, how, um, how is it for you when you learned your results? And did you also have testing done through a genetic counselor? Or how did you learn that information? Okay.
0: So I went to Mount Sinai as well. And I sat with a genetic counselor. And we had a lot of conversation. And I did have questions. And it was helpful. I also think that I went in thinking that I knew more than I did now reflecting back on everything. Mm -hmm. Um, So I did the testing, they sent it to Ambry um, as well, because that's who the hospital uses in New York City. And then I went back in for my results. And even though I knew what I was going to do, regardless of the situation, when I was told that I was positive, I was very upset, Mm. I cried and Mm -hmm. i was scared
1: yeah what what was the scariest part of it for you
0: i think just the surgery in general and not knowing like what could happen and being scared that something could go wrong
1: Uh uh-huh
0: and at the time so i'm 31 right now i want to say i got tested maybe about four years ago and Uh you know for me it was like i'm 26 27 years old and i have this thing weighing over me and i know a lot of individuals when i share with them or talk to them about this they don't understand and they think that oh, well, you're going to get your stomach removed, like, that's crazy, or how are you going to live? And Mm -hmm. for me, when you watch someone you love go through what they did, and this is just my perspective, Mm -hmm. I couldn't allow my aunt to die and then not do something about it to save my own life.
1: Right. So, did you you started? It sounds like you started with endoscopies first, and then eventually did the prophylactic gastrectomy.
0: Yes. So, for probably about three years, the first time I went, I did a colonoscopy and an endoscopy, and then I just did the endoscopies every six months. And I as well started the mammograms and the breast MRIs, alternating every six months as well. And then. On November 30th, um, 2017, I did a prophylactic total gastrectomy.
1: Okay. And so what was that surgery like for you in terms of leading up to it and then the actual surgery and the risks and the recovery?
0: So leading up to it, I at first didn't really think about it. And I didn't wanna think about it just because it it made me upset. So I stayed really busy. I was finishing my MBA, working full time. um, And I almost like threw myself into that. So that way I couldn't think about it. And then Mm -hmm. leading up to it, probably about four weeks before, I was extremely anxious, really upset. And (laughs) I think I said, uh, multiple times to at the time my boyfriend like what if I die (laughs) Mm because I was so scared
1: yeah and
0: and I I then I had the surgery and the day was extremely emotional Mm -hmm. so it was a robotic surgery so what they did Mm -hmm. is they went in robotic removed my stomach and then my surgeon went in And he was not able to attach my esophagus and my intestine laparoscopically. He Uh he tried a multitude of times and the staple gun malfunctioned. I was in there for about 11 hours um, and it eventually did work, but they had to open me up. Um, I woke up with 22 staples, the norm of the two drains, feeding tube, and all of the other fun stuff that goes along with it. Um, From a recovery standpoint, it was very challenging. It was upsetting. It emotionally um, was very difficult for me, which, you know, it's mentally, physically draining. Um, And there was a lot of complications Throughout my recovery to where it took me about nine and a half months to be able to even like go back to work normally because of all of the complications that occurred.
1: And was this, did you say, had you finished your MBA before you had the surgery or was this kind of like in the middle and you had to put a pause on it?
0: I finished it. So I originally was going to get the surgery done and then I decided to go back to school. So I went into a 22-month executive MBA program at Fordham in Lincoln Center in Manhattan. And my goal was to finish school, which I did, and then get my surgery. Um, Based off of information that I've read, they actually say now that you should be at 30.5 is actually the high point to wait for the surgery, and that's where I was.
1: 30 30 and a half what's what do you mean by 30.5 so 30
0: so I 30 years old and six months so oh
1: that's very precise yeah
0: <laughs> so, and I only saying that because I was literally at that time and that wasn't on purpose okay. it was just you know, uh, when it fell um, okay
1: one one positive thing is that you happen to work out for you in the exact recommended time yeah <laughs> Do you you have a sense of how common it is to have the sorts of complications that you had with a gastrectomy? Like if that's something that that comes up often, or if it was bad luck, or if there are different things that could have been done to avoid it?
0: Yeah, so... I did a lot of research and I follow a lot of different bloggers and individuals that are now positive for CDH1 or have had total gastrectomies. And I think for me, unfortunately, it's just everything that could have went wrong did. So Mm -hmm. everything from the staple gun malfunctioning and them not being able to connect my esophagus and my intestine. And due to that, my esophagus was extremely small. So I actually Mm -hmm. couldn't eat or drink almost anything for months. And I lost about 40 pounds. I'm a small person. So I went into the surgery weighing 123, which for me is actually was almost kind of heavy. I'm usually around 117. And I got down Mm -hmm. to 73, 74 pounds.
1: So you lost 40 pounds. You didn't really have to lose in the first place.
0: Yeah, exactly. Um, So... I couldn't walk, I couldn't eat, couldn't drink, I I couldn't do anything, because you have no energy, right? Because you're so malnourished. And then when they went in to stretch out my esophagus and see what was going on, it actually tore open. And then I had a stent placed in that was too large, and then another stent put in and then that stent fell into my GI tract. And there was just Everything that could have gone wrong did.
1: Yeah. How did you how did you get your nutrition during that time when you couldn't eat or drink? Did you have an IV?
0: No, I didn't. So I originally had a feeding tube, but the feeding tube popped out of my GI tract. So that of Cuz
1: that would be something else that could have gone wrong, so it did. Yeah, <laughs>
0: yeah, so it, yeah. Yep, so it popped out of my GI tract, so I didn't have that, and then I was having such a hard time with liquids. That I the protein shakes the this, the that. they just didn't work. And also, right, I've got my stomach removed, my body's so different. I also just couldn't eat and drink certain things. So a lot of what they wanted me to then drink, I couldn't because then it made me not feel good, like the protein. Mm-hmm. Um, So eventually, so I had my surgery in November. I was in the hospital for two weeks. Then I went back into the hospital in March and April. I was there for a stint of about 23 days. They then finally put a PPN in, and that's how I was then getting my nutrition.
1: Yeah. Did you have a a nutritionist that you consulted with, like regularly during all this time
0: i did and i think that one of the challenges was is that she i was treated as if someone who was malnourished or um, someone who had a part of like a bypass opposed to someone who no longer had an entire organ being my stomach Mm -hmm. so um,
1: that kind of i don't know having worked briefly and GI cancer counseling with like, there was a dedicated nutritionist as part of the team that sort of surprises me (laughs) that, you know, in New York city, you wouldn't have had a nutritionist who was sort of familiar with your situation and how it was very different from those other situations.
0: Yeah. And I think that that goes part of like, something else that just kind of went wrong and a lot of what the nutritionist was sharing with me, like I already knew, like I knew. Yeah, I need to make a protein shake and need to put this, this, and this in it. But I couldn't swallow. So Mm -hmm. I think for me, it's not even harping on the nutritionist piece of it, right? Like I couldn't swallow. There was something else wrong. And what was wrong is is that the ostomosis, so the connection between my esophagus and my intestine, it never healed. So it never healed because of the surgery. But then I couldn't get nutrition right because I couldn't eat and drink so it was a double-edged sword like it was never gonna get fixed so in a way I'm so thankful I guess in a sense that it tore open because Uh honestly if it never did who knows what state I would be in today I highly doubt I'd be on the phone with you I'd probably still be weighing 73 pounds thinking that this was now my life
1: we'll be back with Shirley's story in just a minute A few weeks ago Gray Genetics launched two new services just for you. Have you taken a 23andMe DNA test and want to discuss the results of your report? Does cancer run in your family and you want a certified genetic counselor to give you a personalized risk assessment? If so or if you have other genetics related questions then these new services are for you. Upload your family history or DNA reports and a genetic counselor will review them and return a personalized review to you in three to five business days. Check out these services on greygenetics.com. That's G-R-E-Y genetics dot com. So after you said like it took like nine and a half months before you could go back to work and then once you were... Um, once you were actually getting some nutrition and starting to be more on a healing path, then like what has it been like for you to live without a stomach as you've kind of transitioned toward being in a healthier place?
0: Yeah. So I finally hit 100 pounds in August. And I feel that at first when I went back to work, it was, of course, extremely challenging. The type of job that I have is – very customer focused internally and externally so presenting being in front of clients right you can't eat and drink when you're doing that um Uh so i my life is different now in a sense and what i mean by that is is that every sip that i take or every bite that i take i have to think about it i still have to think about it because i really haven't been out in a better place for that long. So I need to make sure that I really chew my food. Um, I stay away from meat because it's harder to process. So I'll have difficulties at times. I need to make sure I'm sitting up and down. I can't eat my food and drink at the same time. Um, so there's are small things that other people take for granted each day. Mm-hmm. But I also feel that because I have to think about these small things, that makes me really thankful for small things, because you then start to think about all of the little things that yeah. you don't, right? Like, so it's even something Um, my, so Matt, he's my fiance for months, he had to shower me because I had two drains and I, I couldn't even shower myself. And mm-hmm. so- you wake up and you're just really thankful for small stuff. So I yeah. say that life without a stomach is in a way the same that it was before. It's amazing that your what your body can go through and what you can fight through and you know for me like my intestines are going to become my stomach and do what that organ did. Um so even though I have challenges, it's given me a different perspective on life.
1: Yeah. And is that, it? Is it something where, do you think you've kind of hit your new normal, maybe not in terms of weight, but in terms of how you eat and drink and how your digestive system works now? Or do you think that that's something that's going to kind of continue to evolve and normalize?
0: So I think that it will continue to evolve and it will get better. So two weeks ago, I had my first endoscopy since Uh, April. And he went in and he stretched out my esophagus a little bit, just because it is still small. And, you know, that will allow me to eat a little bit more. And, you know, maybe in a few years, I will be able to eat meat. I'm never going to sit down and have a steak. But I do think that as my body gets used to this new norm, I'll be able to have other things. And as I read a lot about other individuals who have gone through this, I see that over time, like things evolved for them. So they couldn't eat certain things and now they can.
1: And is that because the stomach is normally, um, like acids from the stomach play a really important role in breaking down those tougher foods?
0: Yeah. And it's that holding place, right? So it breaks it down for the tougher foods and it's the holding place for your food as whereas I don't have that anymore. And then I think that something else for me is just all of the issues that I had with my esophagus. So as Mm -hmm. like, you know, like the esophagus is a very finicky muscle. And Mm -hmm. I sometimes will swallow something and it just gets stuck. And it's my esophagus kind of closing up.
1: Yeah. And even, I guess, esophagus is one of those things where, like, gastric reflux is so common. Like, lots of otherwise ostensibly healthy people have have issues with their esophagus to begin with. So it's easy to imagine how (laughs) with more irritation (laughs) could, could be even trickier. Yeah, definitely. Um, And so in terms of breast surveillance, are you just continuing with the mammogram and the MRI every six months? I know you mentioned that your mother had a prophylactic mastectomy.
0: Yeah. So right now I am just doing the mammograms and the MRI every six months. I alternate. I will eventually get a double mastectomy as well. Um, You know, I went and I met with a genetic counselor and I know that it's not the norm and you don't have to do it. For me personally, I went through something that was really challenging and I will not get breast cancer. I just won't do it. Like You don't remove your stomach and then risk getting breast cancer.
1: Right. Is there, like you said, 30.5 is the recommended age for the gastrectomy? Is there a similar recommendation for the <laughs> mastectomy? So
0: based off of what I've read, there's not, um, It when I've talked to my surgeons, they have said that I could wait until my late 30s to do it, and that's their recommendation. But based off of just what I've read, there's not something specific. And, you know, I think it, it goes back to just personal choice and i've read stories of individuals who have gotten total gastrectomies and then they've gotten breast cancer and um, i also have breast cancer that runs in my family outside of cdh1 it's on my father's side so Uh i just think for me i even have a higher increased risk
1: yeah that makes sense so when you were when you were given the i mean i know you recently got engaged and you were to Matt and you were dating at the time that you had your testing done and learned that you had a CDH1 mutation, is that right?
0: No, we weren't. Um, So I met Matt probably a few months after, but I was seeing him when my mom did get her surgery. It was actually right around the time I met him.
1: So I know he works in genetics, or at least used to. Did that make the conversation easier with him? Or at what point after meeting him did you let him know that your mother had this mutation um, and that you were going to have testing and had a 50% chance of having the same thing?
0: So when we first met, we both worked in healthcare, and at the time, he was not specific to the world of genetics. I shared with him just that my mother was in the hospital and gave him a little bit of information. And then as time went on, I told him that I had it as well, and I'd been tested for it, and this is something that I wanted to do. And I think that because he was in healthcare, it did make the conversation easier, but he's also just has more of an open mind in general. And it's something that he then has made a career out of um, to where that is what he sells. He sells hereditary cancer testing because it's important to him. It's important to us. And we believe that knowledge is really powerful and we Want more people to know that this is out there and that just because you're positive for something doesn't mean you have to do something drastic, what someone may consider drastic, um, but mm-hmm. it can just be increased surveillance,
1: right? Um, did learning that you have a CDH1 mutation, did it feel like that changed your relationship or put a lot of pressure on it? Or was it so early on that it was kind of um, part of the relationship all along?
0: Yeah, I think because it was so early on, it was just always part of the relationship. And when I shared it with him too, it was like, this is what I'm doing. Like this is what happened, <laughs> and this is what I'm doing. You know, we were so new in the relationship too that honestly, at the time, um, there even if there was an opinion, I don't know if right it would have been appropriate to give just because it was so soon. Um, but I could see if someone had been someone with someone for longer, how someone may have had a strong opinion, or maybe if they're not in healthcare, just not understanding why someone would want to do what they were doing. Because I know for me, so many people did not understand and gave their opinion, but they also, Mm -hmm. they didn't understand.
1: What kind of, like, what kind of conversations did you have with people Um, where they were they express those opinions. <laughs> I'm wondering how that how that would come about.
0: Yeah, so sharing with them just maybe about my aunt or probably more so when my mom was in the hospital and sharing what she was going through and it being like, oh, well, she doesn't have cancer. Like, that seems really drastic. I'm Like, well, I could uh-huh. hear where you're coming from, but these are the facts. And based off of these facts and what has happened to my family, we don't consider it drastic. And again, for us, it was my aunt didn't die for nothing. She gave us a gift and we're going to do something with it.
1: Yeah. Do you know if your cousins have also had testing done and made similar choices?
0: So a handful of my cousins have had testing, and there's been a mixture of positives and negatives. My mom's cousin was tested a few years ago and was positive, and she made the decision not to get a a prophylactic total gastrectomy, but she was doing her endoscopies. And about a year ago, when she went in for her endoscopy, they found cancer. And Mm -hmm. then she had to do chemo, get a total gastrectomy, and then do chemo again. And she's okay, thankfully. but it's an example of at least she was getting the increased surveillance because if she wasn't, she wouldn't be here. Um, My uncle, my mother's brother was also positive. And when they Mm -hmm. went in for his total gastrectomy, they did find cancer cells and he's okay. They removed everything, Um, but he wouldn't be here today if he didn't go in for that gastrectomy because maybe when they did the endoscopy, right, they could have missed it. Because, again, right. like you can't biopsy the entire stomach. It's targeted.
1: Right. Mm-hmm. So at this point in your life, you're recently engaged. You don't have kids yet. Um, I don't know if that's something that you thought about before you learned about all of this and if having a CDH1 mutation makes you think about it any differently or um, your brother's decision to have testing done related to his family planning. Has that kind of affected how you think about your options?
0: Yeah. So Matt and I have had a lot of discussions about this and I will do IVF. And I will make sure that, um, we're testing the eggs and it's not a hundred percent of course, but how amazing that I can actually get rid of this in my family. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's how, at least for me, um, And I'm not saying I always have good days, right? I have days where I get upset or I get frustrated or days all the time where I don't feel well, but I actually have the opportunity to take something and I can make sure that the children that Matt and I have don't have this. And that to me is amazing because so many people get cancer or other illnesses that they have zero control over.
1: Right, and with IVF, Um, with prenatal genetic diagnosis and IVF related to something like this it's really testing for the specific mutation that they know that you carry. So it's really specific targeted testing. I'm wondering, is this another conversation that comes up with people where they're confused and like conflating with CRISPR embryos? Or yeah. <laughs> do you have those kind of conversations with people? Yeah, so it's
0: actually funny that you say that. So I was talking to someone about it probably about two months ago and they were like, oh, so are you just gonna like pick someone that looks like you? I'm like, what are you talking about? I'm like, it's going to be my egg. Like I think they thought i was gonna go in um it was gonna be someone else's egg
1: (laughs) oh that's interesting like assuming that it would have to be an egg donor
0: right right Mm -hmm. whereas
1: whereas really if we know if we know the mutation it can be tested for yeah exactly
0: (laughs) and um so and i think on my end when things like that happen I then the next time I share, I'm just more specific. And the reason again, is just because the education piece of it is really important to me. Um, So I want Mm -hmm. them to know that this is an option and this is something that you can do. And I think that that's great that we have the technology to be able to do that.
1: Yeah. Um, And I know you started an Instagram account recently called proviver underscore perspective where you write about um well i don't know if i should say write about because where you post about (laughs) (laughs) since it's instagram where you post about um stomach cancer and helping to raise awareness for stomach cancer what what inspired you to do that and what do you wish that people um or even doctors just knew about cdh1 hereditary cancer mutations or just stomach cancer specifically
0: yeah. So what inspired me to do it is that when I was going through everything that I was essentially this past year, I felt really alone and I felt this way with having a tremendous support system. So I had so many family, friends, no matter what, there was just so many support from texts, calls, people visiting me, taking care of me. And I still felt like I was the only person in the world going through this. And then when I started to go online and read that other people were going through this that were around the same age as me or were younger, I connected with them and it it made me feel not alone. And it made me Mm -hmm. feel, okay, well, they were okay. I'll be okay too. Um, So over just the course of this last year, why I started it was because if just one person reads something that helps them, like to me, that's winning because someone else did that for me and they may not realize it, but they did.
1: Yeah. Yeah. How So you mentioned you've been able to connect with younger people who've had who've either had stomach cancer or who have this same as a C, who also have a CDH one mutation?
0: Yeah, so through social media, just individuals who have blogs, for example, and just reading things that they've been through, um, it helps because I'm like, oh, that happens to me too.
1: Right. Are there any of those resources that you'd specifically recommend that you found more helpful than others? I know you mentioned that your mom, uh, which one did you say that your mom so no,
0: connected Yeah. With? So No Stomach for Cancer. Um, They have a website, they help you in any way possible from connecting with different physicians or individuals who have had this. And something that you asked me earlier was, what is something that I wish maybe physicians knew? So one of the things is that if you're a physician who has someone who's going through this, I feel that it should be part of the protocol to connect individuals or to say to them, Hey, talk to other people who are going through this because I walked into this and nothing could have prepared me for it. But I think that if I would have done a little bit more research or I would have known of different support groups, I think that it would have really helped me emotionally um, because Mm -hmm. I was in a really poor place emotionally and it was really challenging and, I'm a really positive person, and I'm a go getter. And it's not me to be like that. But this Mm -hmm. entire thing, um, it in a sense kind of broke me, because it was just really hard to get through. Um, And I feel like that helped me. And then I think that physicians who don't test their patients for hereditary cancer are really doing a disservice. I think that they Mm -hmm. should talk to their patients about their family history. They should make people understand. And if they're not comfortable doing it, then um, they should reach out to genetic counselors or different organizations because there are so many people that this does impact.
1: And why do you feel, I mean, it sounds like you think that, and I'm also under the impression it's very true, that doctors um, miss a lot of patients who meet criteria for testing, who meet guidelines for testing, insurance would likely cover testing for them, and they're not offered testing. Why, why do you think that is? Are they, are they missing the family history or they don't, they don't realize the, like, what the family history suggests?
0: Yeah, so I think that there is a handful of different reasons. I think one that providers now have to do so much. And so Mm -hmm. it's not only about patient care anymore, right? So they have to deal with billing, insurance companies. There's so much that goes into their day to day. And with that, I'm sure it's extremely challenging to stay on top of other things. Um, I think another reason is, is that they don't know. And maybe they're not seeking out that information or that information isn't being provided to them or they think, um, and I can say this about like my fiance, Matt, I can't tell you how many times someone has looked at him and said like, oh, well, people don't have CDH1. And he's like, well, (laughs) actually. And then he tells our story and it's just like, you shouldn't assume the information. Because you don't know, right? Mm-hmm.
1: Do you, Do you? Have you heard from him how that story impacts physicians if they think it's a one-off, or it if it really changes their perspective?
0: Yeah, I think that in a majority of cases, it changes their perspective because then they can connect with that with someone's story. Um, I'm not saying that they all then turn around and test, but I do think that there's been cases where he has made people um, just open up their minds and expand what they think um, because they just, they don't know and you don't know what you don't know, right? Whether you have a PhD or an MBA or whatever it is, um, we all have to continue learning and growing. Right
1: what would you say to someone who's listing and thinking about their own family history of cancer, you know, maybe stomach cancer or maybe they've heard it was colon cancer or you know any kind of cancer where they've thinking maybe they meet criteria for testing but they've not been offered testing Um, and maybe now hearing your story of the castrectomy (laughs) are more more hesitant to go ahead with testing, like what would you want them to know?
0: Yeah, so I think that if you're someone who has cancer that runs in your family, I would sit down and kind of map out who has it. Um, If you're not sure where to go, I think connecting with really any hospital or health system, they'll be genetic counselors or if you have insurance, calling your insurance company and asking them what genetic counselors are in the area. I think as far as like hearing my story and then saying, oh my goodness, I wouldn't want to go through that or I wouldn't want to do that. my response to that is is I'm such a different person than I was a year ago. and even though I had all of these challenges and things happen to me, I don't have cancer. I'm not going to get stomach cancer. And if anything, it's made me a better person because I have like this newfound appreciation for, as I said, like the smallest of things. And not everyone gets that, right? Like we're all gonna, We all get different things from different moments or experiences, but for me, even all of the things I've been through and my hardest of days, I would still go back and I would still make the same exact decision that I made because I know that it was the right choice.
1: Yeah. It's a really nice perspective. You're not someone who needs a book on mindful eating either. (laughs) No, definitely (laughs) not. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> all of your eating is mindful some yeah. people so you know some people strive for that <laughs> they do they
0: do see I'm accomplishing goals over here I didn't even know
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's right <laughs> um well that's awesome thank you so much for sharing your story um and it's always um it's always nice to hear someone who had you know like actually did have everything yeah. <laughs> go wrong um but you know came out on the other side and has like a really positive positive perspective on it too yeah, no, Thank you. If you'd like to share your story, send an email to podcast at graygenetics.com. Patient Stories is an ad-free podcast and is unaffiliated with any commercial genetic testing laboratories. We would like to keep it that way. You can now donate to Patient Stories online by going to graygenetics.com slash podcast slash donate. If you don't want to make a monetary donation but still want to support the show in another way... Leaving a review on iTunes or sharing our episodes through social media also makes a big difference. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute medical advice and is also not a substitute for genetic counseling. Neither Great Genetics nor any of its guests makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast. Evaluation of an individual's
0: personal and family health history is a crucial part of genetic counseling and any recommendations.